I once pulled down my pants in the Senate Minority Leader's office at the Michigan State Capitol. No, I wasn't having a psychotic break. I had to give myself a shot in the bud because I was trying, in the most expensive and time-consuming and emotionally exhausting way possible, to have a baby. I was going through the infertility process of IVF, or in vitro fertilization. And when I say process, I mean process. All of it has to be perfectly timed. First, there's years of trying to have a baby the good old fashioned way, you know, sex. Then there's the doctor's appointments where they try different combinations of oral medications tests to see if anything is wrong with you. When you do finally say, yes, I'm going to do IVF, then even more fun because you have daily shots to stimulate your ovaries. Then there's the egg retrieval and you wait for those eggs to be shots. And then you lose some embryos because they're not viable. And then you're left with however many you get. Maybe you need another egg retrieval, but then... By the time you go to transfer an embryo into your body, you've now gone through months of painful injections, medications that make you sweat, cry, and scream, and sleepless nights just trying to not get your hopes up too much that you will finally be able to complete your family. But what if, as you're going through all of this to get yourself a baby, a court made a decision that shut down your doctor's office. That's what happened to Gabby Goydell in Alabama. I just broke down into tears. I really was inconsolable. We just started calling every clinic that we could think of. I'm not stopping this cycle. I've already been through too many shots, already invested too much time and energy. This week, the Alabama Supreme Court declared that embryos have the same rights as people. The case came after a group of Alabama residents sued an IVF clinic for accidentally destroying their embryos, arguing that dropping the vials of embryos amounted to, quote, wrongful death. Because the entire IVF process depends on getting multiple embryos, freezing them, and potentially not using them, clinics all over the state shut down to try to figure out what they could do. And this is just the start of the fallout of IVF after the Dobbs decision took away the right to an abortion. This is incredibly dangerous for the future of fertility care. Dr. Elizabeth Constance is a reproductive endocrinology and infertility specialist in Nebraska. Even though there's not an immediate threat in the state where I am right now, you know, I practice in a red state in the middle of the country. And so, you know, this could very well, you know, come to our front door next. And, and we're already seeing this spreading to other areas. Um, there's a group in Florida who has already asked that the Florida Supreme Court use the Alabama ruling as a precedent in considering a ballot initiative in that state aimed at protecting access to abortion and reproductive care. And so, you know, this is the first of these decisions, but it's by no means the last. Today on the show, how declaring embryos people could keep millions of children from being born. I'm Shana Roth, filling in for Lizzie O'Leary. This is What Next TBD, a show about technology, power, and how the future will be determined. Stick around. I want to start with some basics. How does IVF work? And 
for listeners, I want to be clear that there's a couple different infertility methods out there. There's IVF, which is in vitro fertilization. There's also something called intrauterine insemination where semen is injected into the uterus. So we are just talking about IVF. And so can you please explain what IVF is? Absolutely. So IVF or in vitro fertilization is a highly effective fertility treatment that involves the woman taking injectable medications to stimulate the ovaries with the intention of getting a group of activated eggs to grow and develop simultaneously. We then do a procedure with anesthesia to remove those eggs from the body, which allows us to put eggs and sperm together in the lab to create embryos. And then typically one good quality embryo at a time is transferred back to the uterus in an attempt to achieve pregnancy. And in that process, many patients will have additional embryos that then can be frozen to save for later use. And the embryos are sort of the big part of all this that are at issue here. And whenever there is an IVF cycle, the goal is to get as many viable embryos as you can. And I think some people might be like, well, why not just do, why not just have one? Can you explain why it's so crucial to get multiple embryos, even if you just want to have like one kid? Absolutely. And so the way I explain this, you know, when I'm consulting with a couple who may be considering IVF for the first time is that unfortunately, humans are really bad at reproduction. And that's really hard when you want nothing more than to get pregnant and have a healthy baby. But there is a lot of inefficiency built into our biology. And so where those inefficiencies arise is, you know, not every egg that we get is going to be capable of being fertilized. Not every egg that fertilizes will make an embryo. Not every embryo will result in a pregnancy. And so, you know, when we kind of see that natural loss along the way, it it can take multiple eggs and multiple embryos to get to a single live birth. And I think what some people don't realize is that each of those stages costs a lot of money and involves a lot of medication. So when you do an egg retrieval, you want to get as many embryos as possible because you don't want to have to do multiple egg retrievals because then you have a lot more money and a lot more hormones and shots and things like that in order to go through that process. And in your experience, how long can the IVF process take and how much does it cost? Yeah. So, I mean, you're exactly right. And it, you know, our goal is always to only have to go through this process once because not only is it cost, but you're putting, you know, the woman through injections of medications and a procedure under anesthesia that has risk to it. And so we, we want to minimize not just cost, but risk as well. Um, the typical IVF cycle depending on the clinic and geography and and protocols and things like that can range anywhere from 12 to $30,000. And so, you know, that's even more reason why we don't want to, you know, put somebody through a $12,000 procedure three or four times if we can do it one time and have a better outcome. In Alabama, this whole process is now up in the air. In IVF, it's really common for an embryo not to lead to a pregnancy. So if embryos have the same rights as people and an embryo isn't viable, 
Could the doctors administering IVF be sued for wrongful death? Since the Alabama court ruling, clinics across the state have paused treatment. And Dr. Constance says patients are scrambling. It's unclear what options there are. Certainly leaving the state for care is an option. Transferring embryos out of the state to use them elsewhere um, is an option. That is a very expensive option for people who have already invested tens of thousands of dollars into this medical care. You know, that is going to be prohibitive for many families. Um, part of the reason for the halt in care in the clinics in Alabama right now is to just give them time to get legal counsel to see, other than patients having to leave the state for care, what other options may there be for being able to move forward. Yeah, I feel like that's one of the big problems here is a lot of these clinics don't know really how to interpret this ruling. And then they don't want to become criminally liable or civilly liable. And nobody really knows what to do. And so they're really left with no choice but to close their doors for a while until this is sorted out. Right. And the and the concern is, you know, this this particular instance that led to this ruling is obviously a, a exceedingly rare circumstance. But what the clinics are concerned about is the fact, you know, as we mentioned, in the process of IVF, there's a lot of inefficiencies. And so, you know, if you fertilize an egg and it just naturally stops developing in the process of, you know, growing in the lab, is the clinic or the embryologist or the physician criminally liable for that embryo not surviving? You know, when we freeze and thaw embryos, there's a, you know, about a 1% to 2% chance of an embryo not surviving that thawing process when we go to, to use it to try to achieve a pregnancy. Is the lab, you know, or physician criminally liable for that, you know, natural process that we know occurs 2% of the time? You know, if a patient has an early miscarriage, are they going to be criminally liable for that? So it's not just these kind of very rare circumstances, but it's the everyday you know, natural biological processes that, you know, we are concerned about legal ramifications for. Do we know if or when doctors might feel like they have clear guidance on how to proceed? I mean, what are they looking for? How are they going to know, like, okay, now we can move forward? Yeah, I am not sure what that timeline is going to be. I don't know that anybody is aware of that timeline. I think right now they are, you know, getting advice from their legal Councils and, you know, really trying to interpret and understand, you know, the ramifications so that they can move forward as safely and effectively as possible. So when this ruling came out, I think one of the ideas that probably popped into quite a few people's heads was, well, you put the embryos on a freezer truck and you get them out of the state. How feasible is it, though, and how costly is it for families to essentially move any embryos that they have out of the state and then do their treatment um, in a different state. Yeah, so it's it's certainly possible, but it is it is complicated. If one was to pursue that option, you know, the process first, you have to find a clinic or a storage facility out of state that is willing to accept them. And then the embryos, you know, can be shipped in liquid nitrogen from, you know, point A to point B and then transferred into a permanent storage container. 
That is a risky process. I mean, if we think about it, embryos are microscopic. They are smaller than a grain of sand. And so when you have something so small and so delicate in a shipping truck that is vibrating and bouncing along the highway, you know, there is always a risk that those embryos get damaged or lost in the process. Not to mention you'd have to find a new, an entirely new clinic and new doctors, you know, an entirely new staff to get used to for a very invasive and personal type of treatment. It's it's a real mind melt. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean... It's equivalent to asking a, you know, person in the middle of chemotherapy treatment to travel to another state and continue their care with a completely different set of physicians and nurses and support staff, you know, midway through treatment. And and we that would sound ridiculous if we suggested that in that context, but that's exactly what, you know, people are suggesting in in these contexts as well. We've touched on, when it comes to IVF, the costs, tens of thousands of dollars, the time that it takes. What about the emotional investment and the emotional piece of all of this, the sort of mental toll that IVF takes on these patients? Can you describe what it means if you're like mid-cycle and then all of a sudden you have to you have to like change your plans or even if you're not, but like having this disruption in your IVF process. Oh, it's absolutely devastating. And I think the the mental toll is probably the biggest toll and, and the hardest to quantify. You know, the IVF process is, is a very stressful process, no matter how hard we work to, to try to decrease that stress. Um, it's multiple, you know, daily or twice a day injections. It's multiple appointments for blood draws and ultrasounds. The timing of it is very uncertain because we have to rely on the biology and everybody's biology is different. But for people who are going through this process and have so much invested, that lack of control that you already have over the t- when things are going to fall, how the timing of things is going to happen, what your outcome is going to be, there's already so much stress and uncertainty that then adding, you know, am I even going to be able to ever come back and use these eggs or embryos is just, you know, another level of, of stress and anxiety and loss of control. When we come back, how this decision in Alabama could have ramifications for IVF all around the country. It seems pretty clear that this Alabama decision is really going to hinder IVF in the state. Do you think that was the intention of the decision? You know, I I always am hesitant to um, assume intent, um, but I certainly think there are people who have been very pro-restriction in reproductive care who have stated publicly that their ultimate goal is not only to end abortion, but to end IVF as well. And so there are certainly people for whom this is the ultimate end result of, of these legislative efforts. Regardless of whether it was the intent of the people who wrote this decision, it is absolutely the impact of that decision. Yeah. And I mean, for some people, 
myself included, it seems surprising and kind of confusing that the anti-abortion movement is also anti-IVF, given that IVF is is trying to create life and, and make life happen. Why are these two tied together? I think it comes down to the arguments about the debate over when life begins. And because IVF deals with fertilized eggs and embryos, um, there are groups of people for whom that is unacceptable. Has IVF always been so controversial? And, And I mean, is it really even controversial today or are most people kind of used to it? I guess what's a little bit of the history of attitudes towards IVF? So, you know, IVF as a technology has been around for about 40 years now. Um, I think it's always been a little bit controversial, but the vast majority of medicine and the general public are supportive of this. I think that it has become more controversial in recent times as the debate about reproductive care in general has heated up. But certainly, you know, there are people for whom, you know, this is counter to their religious beliefs on, you know, regarding um, the beginning of life. And as as professionals, as physicians, you know, we see patients from all walks of life. And we have these discussions um, with people of all different religious backgrounds. And and we, we have to meet people where they are. And, you know, certainly every single couple that goes through IVF brings their own personal, moral, and religious beliefs to that table. You know, I certainly see couples who come to us and 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 that's a hard stop for them. They're not willing to pursue IVF because of their own personal beliefs. But at, at the end of the day, that's their right. But it, it should be every family and individual's right to, you know, bring their own set of beliefs to the table and in discussion with their trusted healthcare provider, make the decision that's right for them. Have you been hearing concerns from patients about what this could mean for them, even in your current state of Nebraska, which is sort of its own battleground state for reproductive rights? Absolutely. You know, from the moment this coverage began, uh, we have been inundated with phone calls and DMs on social media from patients, you know, concerned. I've had patients reach out to me asking me if they should move up their planned embryo transfers, you know, months earlier than they had, you know, wanted to in case something like this happens. I've had patients reach out to me about whether they need to move their embryos out of state in case something like this happens. And so, you know, people have are, are very concerned and very aware that this could impact more than just the people of Alabama. I want to dig into the actual opinion itself and specifically how religion and law and science are being tied together in this case in a sort of big, messy jumble. So in a concurring opinion, one of the justices, Chief Justice Tom Parker, quoted a Bible verse. And I find it really offensive. I mean, not only because I'm Jewish and our interpretation of the Torah doesn't have a problem with abortion, but also because the Constitution guarantees a separation between church and state. And when we think of science, we also think of, well, there should be that separation between religion and science. How does it make you feel when you see in a legal opinion scripture being used? Yeah, it's it's absolutely concerning to see, you know, one person's 
interpretation of their particular religious belief being applied broadly to medical decisions affecting people of all walks of life. You know, as physicians, we are taught to check our, you know, personal religious beliefs at the door because, you know, our patients are going to come from every walk of life, every religious persuasion, including no religious persuasion. And oftentimes these very complex decisions regarding IVF, regarding abortion care, you know, I talk to patients all the time who are like, I never thought I would have sought this care, but now that I need it, here I am, and I'm so grateful that it's there. And so we we oftentimes don't know what decision we would make until we're put in that situation. And I think that's why it's so critical that patients and families be allowed to, guided by their own personal, moral, or religious compass in consultation with their trusted healthcare provider, be allowed that space and that freedom to make personal medical decisions for themselves. There was a lot of talk when Roe was first overturned that IVF would be threatened. And this seems to be one of the first major examples of that happening. What does this Alabama decision say about the state of IVF in the post-Roe landscape? The state of IVF is absolutely at risk. Um, First and foremost, in those states that have passed or are seeking to pass these, you know, so-called personhood bills, those will inevitably impact IVF. So I think this is absolutely the inevitable conclusion of the process that was started with the overturning of Roe. So if decisions like this keep happening, what do you think that's going to mean for the thousands and thousands of people who need IVF in order to have children? IVF is, you know, already very difficult for a lot of people who need to access it to do so. It's only going to become exceedingly more difficult. You know, there will always be states where it is protected, um, but people will have to travel to get that care. And that's going to leave out a lot of people who already are on the cusp of being able to afford this you know, adding in that that piece of having to travel out of state for for long periods of time. I mean, IVF process takes you know about two weeks from start to finish once you're once you're doing medications leading up to egg retrieval, and and so people being able to take off of work and leave the state, you know, is just not feasible. It's going to particularly impact low income families, people of color, and the LGBT community. Now, since Roe was overturned, you've been saying that state laws and abortion bans could end up making IVF more difficult and complicated. I think when the Dobbs decision initially came down, the concerns about IVF were sort of pushed to the side a little bit. People weren't really seeing how this was connected. Um, Does this Alabama decision feel like the exact thing that you've been worried about this whole time? Absolutely. I mean, we we have been raising these alarms from the time the, you know, Dobbs decision was leaked. And quite frankly, there was a lot of accusations of hysteria and fear-mongering. And, you know, here we are and it, you know, this is this is exactly what we have been worried about all along. Dr. Elizabeth Constance, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. 
Dr. Elizabeth Constance is a reproductive endocrinologist and infertility specialist. And that's it for our show today. What Next TBD is produced by Evan Campbell and Anna Phillips. Our show is edited by Paige Osborne. Alicia Montgomery is vice president of audio for Slate. TBD is part of the larger What Next family. TBD is also part of Future Tense, a partnership of Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. If you're a fan of the show, I have a request for you. Become a Slate Plus member. Just head on over to slate.com slash whatnextplus to sign up. We'll be back next week with more episodes. I'm Shayna Roth, filling in for Lizzie O'Leary. You can find me on Instagram and threads. I'm at Shayna R, same for X, though to a much lesser extent. Thanks for listening. <laughs>